0: For that, we are going to continue in our sermon called The Way. The Way is where we are. It's what we're doing. We are marching towards Easter. We're almost there. Today, we're picking up the story. Jesus has been arrested. And today, what we're going to uncover is why Jesus is a threat to the people of the day and why he probably is still a threat to you and me. So we're going to just start right away. Luke uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Scripture says, They all took Jesus, the mob, to Pilate, and they began to bring up charges against him. And they said, We found this man undermining our law and order, forbidding taxes to be paid to Caesar, setting himself up as Messiah king. And Pilate asked him, Is it true, Jesus, that you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, Those are your words, not mine. So Pilate told the high priests and the accompanying crowd, I find nothing wrong here. He seems harmless enough to me. But they were vehement. He's stirring up unrest among the people with his teaching, he's disturbing the peace everywhere. He's starting in Galilee, now in Judea. He's a dangerous man. He is endangering the peace. Hmm. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? See that kid? That's me. (laughs) And I'm torturing a cat, it looks like. Um, Not quite sure what's happening in the picture. That's me and my mother in my uh, early elementary years. That does not look like the kind of child that you want to falsely accuse, does it? And yet, in my early childhood, at St. Gregory the Great Catholic School, Mrs. Schaefer, we will never forget her, Mrs. Schaefer, she sent a note home to my mother that accused my mom of doing all of my writing assignments for me. Essentially, she said, this is clearly the writing of someone far beyond um, this person's stage, and you need to let him do his own work. This is not helping him. She's kind of condescending in the way she said it, Um, This was only offensive because my mother had not done any of my work, and so she was both being accused of me being a cheater and her being a cheater on my behalf. Uh, I don't know about moms in the room. She was not pleased, and um, the next day she decided to come to school with me to uh, voice her displeasure, and you can fill in that conversation, how dare you, etc., etc., I ought to, you know, Whatever. The funniest part to me is not that she accused us of cheating or she diminished somehow my ability. She basically um, unknowingly said that my mother had the writing skills of like a sixth grader. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is far beyond his station. And my mom's like, I'm an adult, or you think You think I write like a fifth grader instead of a second grader? Um, that's, that's the most offensive part. But it was a false accusation. It was a funny false accusation. We laugh about it often. Um, but the, the reality of false accusations is they're crushing. Because you can't defend yourself against the fabrication. You can't bring out evidence to oppose the fabrication if the fabrication is just brought out of the air. So it's not only consequences for something you didn't do, but it's confusion added on top of that. Jesus is clearly being falsely accused here. So they're just grasping at straws, trying to figure out some way that they can uh, take him down. And so, it's something about the way he parked his donkey when he came into Jerusalem. Maybe that's it. Or, or he doesn't toast his Pop-Tarts when he eats them, which is super weird, and I don't understand why people do that, but maybe that's what they're saying. Stop doing that. There's, 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 to, there's a toaster. I didn't think I was going to go Pop-Tart rant. i got to keep moving. And yet they bring him to, to Pilate, the governor of the area, and Pilate says what? He's harmless. He's harmless. Guys, he's He's harmless. What are you talking about? So they jump into another argument. The, the Pharisees go, we've well, we got to figure out a way here. So we're going to jump into a different argument. So what do they do? They say he's creating unrest, though. Uh, he's endangering the status quo. He's disturbing the peace. The Bowling Green Code of Ordinances, Title Eight, under General Offenses, Chapter 132, has a whole section of disturbances against the public peace. Some of the things that you can be... Uh, arrested for in that, in that code include uh, loud parties, impersonating an officer, causing a scene at a public meeting. These are disturbing the peace kind of things, basically being a nuisance. Uh, I had to look around in Ohio to find a community that had an actual charge of disturbing the peace, so I found one in University Heights. I want to read it with you. Uh, actually, what does it say? It says, "'No person shall disturb the good order and quiet of the city.'" by clamors or noises, by intoxication, drunkenness, fighting, quarreling, wrangling, whatever that, committing assault, assault and battery, using obscene and profane language in the streets or other public places to the annoyance of the residents or otherwise violate the public peace by incident and disorderly conduct or by lewd and lascivious behavior. That's the ordinance. Wrangling. Who was in the room? And they listed all the things. They list fighting and drunkenness, and someone's like... Can we add wrangling to that? Like, (laughs) I think that's covered. Like, yeah, but if someone has a bull in the town square and they're wrangling it, that could be a problem. What is this, a law? This is a law that protects people from change. Hey, don't mess with the way things are going. Don't, as the law says, disturb the good and quiet order. Yeah, there's some things that are potentially dangerous, intoxication, fighting, etc. Clamors or noises which is just like if there's an annoying guy walking down the street and people are sick of it, now we have a reason to get him off the street. People are getting sick of it. And so we create ways to remove the things that even like the language of that law said, create an annoyance to the residents. Can we get a picture based on that of what's happening to Jesus here? He's disturbing the peace, they say. So they take him to Pilate, the governor of Roman Judea. And he throws his hands up, and what, what Pilate does is he sends him over to Herod. We've heard about Herod in this story already. Herod, who oversaw the area where Jesus had been ministering up in Galilee, he runs Galilee, Herod does, as like a client state. I don't know, Puerto Rico or something. And, and so he's under Roman Empire rule, and yet he's sort of like a one-off. He's, he's out there kind of on his own, and yet he responds to Rome, but he's not officially... And so Herod is there like, like, hey, you deal with him. He's been doing all this stuff in your neck of the woods anyway. He's yours to deal with. So Pilate tries to wash his hands of it. So Herod leans in, and as the story goes, he's asking Jesus. He's actually fascinated with Jesus as you read through the story. And so he kind of wants to know more. Tell me more. Do some magic. What what is this mysticism you're doing? He's curious. And Jesus refuses to engage Herod, refuses to engage that. He's not going to be someone's uh, parlor trick. So Herod says, forget it. And Herod's soldiers dress up Jesus in a a faux kingly outfit. They're the ones who put the crown of thorns on his head, and they send him back to Pilate and say, he's not any good for us. You you take him. So back to Pilate they go. Luke 23, verse 13, we pick up the story. It says, Pilate called in the high priests, the rulers and the others, and said, you brought this man to me as a disturber of the peace. I examined him in front of all of you and found there was nothing to your charge, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back here with a clean bill of health it's clear that he's done nothing wrong, let alone anything deserving death. So I'm going to warn him to watch his step and let him go. And at that, the crowd went wild. Kill him, they said. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas had been thrown in prison for starting a riot in the city and for murder. And Pilate still wanted to let Jesus go, and and so he spoke out again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he tried a third time, but for what crime? I found nothing in him deserving death. I'm going to warn him to watch his step and let him go. You can see Pilate putting his foot down. I'm not doing this. But they kept at it. A shouting mob, demanding that he be crucified. And finally they shouted him down, and Pilate caved in and gave them what they wanted. And he released the man thrown in prison for rioting and murder, and he gave them Jesus to do whatever they wanted. And so the tragedy of Jesus sort of unfolds from there. There's an unjust arrest of a man who is then found to be without fault or crime, who a mob, whipped into a frenzy, decides needs to die anyway for what crime? Disturbing the peace. For clamors and noises. You see, Jesus offended everybody. The problem with Jesus and the reason he's ending up in this place is he was offensive to everyone. There's not a single part, uh, person or party or people group that wasn't offended by Jesus. He offended the Herodians, Herod and his people, the, the far-off Jews, the, those who were secular, those who were just there to gain power. They, they were just trying to make a life for themselves under Roman rule. They were just trying to carve out an existence, and he offended them. And they would say, hey, don't, don't make waves in our life. We're just trying to make a life here. He also offended the more orthodox, the religious among them, the Pharisees, those people that were were concerned with other things, with religion and and the rules and rituals that they were trying to follow. They wanted to dominate that sector of life, and, and Jesus offended them all the same. Look, for worldly people concerned with materialism and power and wealth and consumption, he tells them to turn from their wickedness. Jesus over and over tells those people, turn from your wickedness. Remember the rich young ruler? He wasn't a temple priest. He was the rich young ruler. It, it, Jesus tells him what, when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like basically, how do I join the kingdom that you're preaching? And Jesus' response was, sell all you have and follow me. Jesus' response was, give up your materialism and your consumption. Give up your chase for wealth and instead. Give up all of that stuff and follow me instead. Take on this lesser life because your life is leading to death. Because the guy asked, well, how do I get life? And Jesus said, the life you're living leads to death. This is the way to get life. And he went away sad. Jesus says your wealth won't save you, your connections won't save you, your power won't save you. So he tells the people who are following that path that they're wicked, bound for destruction, which, as you might imagine, is offensive. But at the same time, likewise, for the religious people concerned with the rules and the rituals as their means to power, as their way of holding order, Jesus offends them all the same. He tells them to turn from their wickedness. Well, okay, so we're not like these consumers. We're not like the materialists. We're not like the secular. We're not like those who are out practicing every despicable sin you can imagine. We're holding down the fort here. We're following the rules. And Jesus goes, bound for destruction. Like he told Nicodemus, you have to be reborn. This thing that you're doing, this is leading to death. You have to find a new birth. You have to give up the religion that is worthless and leading to your destruction and your rules and your rituals won't save you and your reputation and your good behavior won't save you. And no one likes to be told that their well-crafted religion, highly ordered life, will lead to death. So the religious are offended. The religious are offended, and the irreligious are offended. The secular are offended, and the rule-following are offended. To use more modern terms, I was reading a Tim Keller sermon on this passage, and, and he quotes uh, the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, and and. Kierkegaard offered two ways that people live their life, and I think this is pretty accurate. We would look at our world and go, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Kierkegaard called one the aesthetic life, which is just the one that's like, hey, follow your dreams, live for you, seek pleasure, find your desires, and fulfill them. It's the aesthetic life. You want something new? Get something new. Treat yourself. Then the other one would be ethical life. There's an aesthetic life, and then there's the ethical life. The ethical life would be the one of duty, the one of doing what's right and seeking your self-actualization and trying to do right by the world. And what Kierkegaard would say is salvation, as Jesus would point out, was not going to be found in either duty or desire. You couldn't fulfill your duties and then therefore feel saved. You also can't fulfill your desires and then find salvation that way. Both lead to despair. But that's where everybody in our culture seeks salvation. And when you and I are not paying attention— When we fall asleep at the wheel, that's one of the two places we're going to go. When we stop following Christ, we go one of those two directions. We either go towards pleasure or we go towards duty, and we think that maybe this is the way. And Kierkegaard said there's a third way, and it's called spiritual life. Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven. The way of Jesus was offensive in the time of Jesus, and if you haven't been paying attention, the way of Jesus is still offensive today. And here's the thing I would like to put before you is not that this is a problem. This is a truth. Jesus is absolutely still offensive. And this is not something we should be ashamed of or run from or apologize for. No, 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 no. Don't give them that, Jesus. That's the offensive of Jesus. My, my neighbor will only, will only listen to us if we make Jesus less offensive. And I would argue that the opposite is true. That your neighbor will only find themselves in the kingdom of heaven if they find the offense of Jesus. Jesus offends and upends every life that he touches. Tim Keller says it this way in that same sermon I mentioned. He says, if you have really heard the real Jesus, you will react the way the people in the Bible react. If you've really heard the real Jesus, you react the same way that they reacted. If you really hear from the real Jesus, if you take him at face value in the gospel, it will be radically offensive even to you. Why? Because we live in the same construct that they lived in. We live in the same lanes that they lived in. Your wealth won't save you. Your good behavior won't save you. Your social justice won't save you. Your golden rule won't save you. Your right politics won't save you. Your religious sacrifice won't save you. Your charitable lifestyle won't save you. You cannot be rich enough or poor enough or white enough or black enough or conservative enough or liberal enough. You cannot make it on your own. You cannot be smart enough or successful enough or desirable enough or humble enough you can drench yourself in pleasure or deny yourself all pleasure. You can take either path, and neither one leads towards Christ. Neither one brings life. So Jesus says your religion can't save you, and your secular life can't save you. To which I would say it this way in summary. I'd say Jesus disturbs the good order and quiet of every life he enters. Stealing a little bit from the the, the code there, Jesus. Jesus disturbs. The good order and quiet of every life he enters. Jesus disturbs the peace, doesn't he? This is why Jesus is arrested and killed. He's pointing out that that duty and desire will never satisfy, that any life lived with anything other than him as king will fall short. And so, religious people and irreligious people are in despair over this because neither of them have it right. This is why Jesus was vilified, this is why Jesus is crucified. And this is the actual one true charge against him, that he was disturbing the peace. Now it wasn't sinful, it wasn't actually a crime, but it was true. Jesus was disturbing and disrupting the good order and the quiet of the system that they had in place. Of religion, and of Rome, and all the places that we are prone to chase our salvation to. It's because the reality is this, when Jesus finds you in your life, when Jesus finds you in your place, when Jesus finds you in the ditch, he will offend you he will point out the places that fall short. He will point out the efforts that aren't going to match up. He will point out the ways that we aren't going to make it. Which to any of us is offensive. Nobody wants to be told, I did my best work and it's a failing grade. And yet the beauty of this offense is it forces us to go back and wrestle with life. We're forced to wrestle with his call and his truth. Maybe, maybe, Probably, actually, probably. Many of us are still wrestling with parts of our lives that Jesus has called into question, that Jesus says that, hey, this is, not, this is not for you. This is not right. This is not life. This is not the path. This is not the way. And we're still wrestling going, man, I don't want to give that part up because that part I'm really clinging on to. Jesus will disturb the peace of your well-ordered life if you let him in he will disturb the peace. He will disturb the peace of your pursuit of pleasure and your pursuit of meaning. He will change the way you see the world around you. He will make the things you thought mattered matter a whole lot less, and he'll make some things that you'd never thought of matter more than you ever believed. He will upend the way that you live. So if you allowed the true Jesus of the Bible... To disrupt your life? That becomes the question of the day. Have you allowed the true Jesus of the Bible to, to disrupt you? To upend your religion, to offend your pursuits? When's the last time you felt the offense from Jesus? Sometimes we call it conviction. That's what that is. Oh, And that's Jesus going, hey, that doesn't lead to life. There shouldn't be shame there. There should be a turning. There should be a, a, a joy, a realization that. Jesus is looking at something in our life that is not leading us towards him and towards life. It's leading us towards destruction. It's leading us towards falsehood. It's leading us towards lies. So only when you feel that offense, only when you actually lean into the thing that you feel is kind of prickly, it's kind of convicting, it's kind of, oh, I wish I didn't feel that right now. Can't I just go on doing the thing I like to do and add Jesus in the meantime? Only when you feel that. Do you learn not to take offense to Jesus? Because there's this difference between feeling his offense and taking offense. Taking offense means I reject him. uh Taking offense is my mother walking into Mrs. Schaefer's class and going, listen here, ma'am. Show me a sample of my writing right here. <laughs> That's taking offense. But had I really not been doing my work and my mother really had been writing my papers, we would feel the offense. Oof and it would require us to go and make a change. It would require us to confess something. It would require us to be more transparent in the way. It would require something different. Taking offense is, let me tell you what I think. Feeling the offense and then making a change is what God is after. Because once we do that, once we feel it and decide not to take offense, it leaves our hands open to take something greater, which is the grace that he has for us. The grace is what we then take. If we don't take offense, but we just feel it, then we take grace, and we take his mercy, and we can take hold of his unconditional love, and then we live in a whole different way because we're not mad at Jesus for convicting us and changing our lives. We're grateful that Jesus would show us the path to true life, and in that gratitude, we start to feel the overflow of his grace. We start to feel his mercy from the places we fall short. We start to feel his love in a way that nothing else feels like that. And then, the last bit of his offense begins to penetrate our hearts, which is the, the thing that the world will tell you is the most offensive thing about Christianity. It's too exclusive. It's too exclusive. It's wildly exclusive. You're telling me that your Jesus says that he's the way and the truth and the life and that no one gets to the Father and no one goes to heaven, no one can be saved except through him? What about the really well-behaved Buddhist? What about the Hindu person? Who's, what about this person who'd never heard the... What about... Too exclusive. I reject it. He's too exclusive. Only when you can take hold of his grace do you recognize that his exclusivity is mirrored by an inclusivity that is just as wild and just as extreme and even more beautiful. Jesus is not the most exclusive is the most exclusive and inclusive. Because every other world religion has you jumping through hoops and working on qualifications and performing rituals and religions. Every other religion in the world has you doing a certain number of things to meet the threshold, to clear the bar, to get in through the hoop. There's nothing more wildly inclusive than Jesus who says, I've qualified for you. You need not try. You don't have to qualify. I've done the work. You don't have to work. I've done the job. You don't have to go through the hoop. I did it for you. You don't have to be crucified for your failings and your shortcomings and your sins because I did it for you. And so the wild exclusivity that the world rejects is actually mirrored by Jesus' incredible inclusivity. Who is who's incapable of receiving his grace? Who's sinned so far that they can't receive his salvation? You can't find someone. Jesus is so wildly inclusive. He stands in for us. His sacrifice on the cross covers us. In willingly taking on what the mob asked for, he took on the false accusations that were true of us. In doing so, Jesus disturbs the peace of all who come across him. And in doing so, He offers us a new peace and a true peace and an eternal peace. In showing us where we're on the path to death, Jesus offers us a path to life. If only we will open our hands to take it. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your conviction upon us. For that offense to fall the places that our lives are not in line with life, as you call it. Father, where the, the ways that we live, the, the attitudes we hold, the posture of our heart, any of these places where we we've chosen our own way, we've created our own path, we've established our own salvation, Lord, I pray that you would, you would make clear to us what stands opposed to you. You would make clear to us that there's nothing but you. So, Father, convict us in those places we need it, and then, Lord, Father, we need your grace. We need to feel the fullness of your acceptance and your unconditional love as we turn and we attempt to seek you in everything, to put you first, to reject the lesser things of life as we take on that journey, as we follow you with our whole lives. Nothing hidden. God, I pray that we would feel the unfathomable grace that you've provided. I pray that we would feel your presence in each and every moment. Lord, I pray that That you would be with us, tangibly with us. That you would lead us by your spirit and you would show us that when we give up the things of the world, when we give up consumption or religion, that we give up, we don't lose out. Remind us that when we gain you, we gain everything. And give us that confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.